Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 8. Continue here looking at the hall of faith with the life of Abraham. Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 8. Please, again, pay attention to the reading of God's word. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we look now to your word and as we consider this example in the life of Abraham, as we consider how he and Sarah and his descendants walked by faith, God, may our eyes be pointed to Christ. May we see our Savior. May we see the one in whom these saints of old, the one to whom they looked, Ultimately, God, may we, by faith, see him, may we embrace him, and God, may Christ be made more and more clear to us. God, through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In 2010, we moved from Beijing, China, to a city in the southwest of China, and we went from being surrounded by mostly Midwesterners who were serving alongside with, side us with crew uh, to people from the south, from North Carolina, uh, Alabama, Georgia. And I remember asking one of my friends, John Green, I said, John, where is your family from? Where do you guys come from? He's like, North Carolina? And I'm like, 
no, like, where are you from, from, you know? And he's like, I don't know. And I was like, you don't know what, like, how can you not know? At the same time, I was like a couple of weeks after that, I was reading this book uh, for one of my seminary classes. And the author was talking about how as a child, he would go and visit his grandma. And in his grandma's house, there was a picture of going way back. There was a picture of the front porch and people sitting on the front porch, different generations lined up in this hallway. And he said, grandma, where are we from? And it was the house was also in North Carolina, which was why this was kind of so ironic that my friend had just told me that she said, well, we're from North Carolina, dear. Like, and he's like, like, same question. I said, no, like, no, where are we from? From she's, she's like, well, we've always been from here. And he's like, we can't have always been from here. Right. And for us as Midwesterners, most of us, um, we hear something like that. And we're like, how can you not know where you're from? Uh, we have Norwegian roots or Polish roots or German or Swiss or Dutch. And many of us have stories of not many generations ago, uh, our ancestors moving from one place to another, making a, a, a long journey and getting settled in an in a unfamiliar land. My great, great grandpa was Golak Golakson. He was Golak something or other. And he moved to America and they dropped the confusing Norwegian last name thing and he became Golak Golaxon. Like that's a huge part of my story, right? My mom's dad, uh, his parents moved to the US from the same village in Switzerland and they didn't know each other when they lived in that village and they met in the States and had farmed and raised a family. You know, I, we have these like stories, right? Of our, of our heritage. And this brings up questions like, who are we and where do we come from? And maybe where are we going? This raises things. These are not just individual things, right? You, you have a name, you have a last name that probably has some story tied to it. And that's related to your family. It's not just, you don't just introduce yourself always with your first name and say, like, I don't say, hi, I'm Josh. And I'm just this individual. I have this individual story, right? No, I, tell people my last name and I might share that story. There's a corporate identity, which is important to our own individual stories. And as the people of God, this is vitally important, right? We don't just gather as individual Christians with our own individual stories. We gather together as the people of God. We all have, really, we all have the same story. We all trace our lineage back to the same starting point. And that's really the emphasis here in Hebrews chapter 11, as our author turns the corner from the primeval history that we saw in the first seven verses that covers Genesis chapter 1 through 11. Now we kind of turn this corner to looking at Abraham and the patriarchs, which is what we see. It's the material covered from Genesis chapter 12 through Genesis 50, through the end of Genesis with the life of Joseph. As Christians today, these, these events here, these things that happen, they are still as much a part of our story for us today, even as they were for these first century Jewish background Christians to whom this letter was written. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen begins his lengthy speech before those who would stone him with a recounting of God's faithfulness to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. So there's, there's this importance to understand where they came from. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, their history is also our history. 
their example of walking by faith and not by sight as they trusted that God would fulfill his promises that is meant to encourage and motivate us as we press on in our faith today. So the who are we and the where do we come from questions, they address the issues of place and people. Okay, again, just think to any of your, of your own stories, your family stories, right? Somebody came from one place to another place. And there's, so there's the place story and then there's the people story, right? There's this background of who were these people and, and how did they make this move? In our text today, we're going to see, we're going to look at two different sections. It's going to be the promise of place and the promise of people. So we're going to look at first the promise of place, then the promise of people. It's going to be kind of this A, B, A, B. It's going to be the promise of place, promise of people, promise, promise of place, promise of people again. So it's like this A, B, A, B structure. So we're going to unpack this passage by looking at its historical significance. And then we're going to get a little bit of help from Paul in Romans chapter four as, as we wrap it up. We're going to see how God's promise of place and his promise of people actually have a huge significance for the church today. So here is my exhortation for us today. Let us today, let us see God's miraculous life-giving power of the gospel through the faith of the patriarchs, and let us live out our identity as those who walk by the same faith today that they did thousands of years ago. Say that one more time. Let us see God's miraculous life-giving power of the gospel through the faith of the patriarchs, and then let us live out our identity as those who walk by that same faith today that they did thousands of years ago. Let's look now at the first promise of place in verses 8 through 10. There are a couple things worth noting here. First is that God calls Abraham, and Abraham immediately obeys God. By faith, he obeys God. And we see here that faith is always a response to something that God initiates. In Abraham's case, we see that he left his homeland, and he went to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. There was this future emphasis. He went out not knowing where he was going. So this is what we were told in verse 1 of Hebrews 11, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, this future emphasis, and it's the conviction of things not seen. Abraham trusted in God, he hoped, and he believed in God, and he had a conviction of something that he couldn't see. He couldn't see this land. There were no Google Maps in those days, right? Abraham couldn't pull out his phone and say, oh, God's telling me to go to this place. Let me, let me pull up the satellite image. Let me zoom in here like, Oh, is there a nice place for my flocks to, to graze on this side of the mountain? Is there, are there any like flat places for us to set up our tent, right? No, he didn't have that opportunity. He had to walk by faith and not by sight, trusting in God's call and obeying, even though humanly speaking, there was a great deal of uncertainty. Now notice this identity language start to emerge as it relates to place. In verse 9, the ESV doesn't quite capture the nuance of this in verse 9, where it says, by faith, he went out to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land. The, the word went out or to live, it actually kind of captures this idea of living as a stranger. Maybe better translation from one commentary. Uh, one commentator translates it like this. Abraham made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. 
there's really this idea that he was a stranger and the land was a strange land, right? It really emphasizes that he, he went out as a stranger into this foreign country. This picture of impermanence is even further emphasized when we see what his dwelling place was. They lived in tents, okay? I know some of you really love camping, but I'm not sure that you would like to make your permanent dwelling place in a tent. So how then did Abraham live by faith in tents in a foreign land? We ask that not logistically, how did he, how did he physically do it, but how was he able to do that? How was he able to endure that? See the answer in verse 10. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Again, his faith was the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. What was Abraham looking forward to? A city. He was looking forward to a city with foundations, not living in a tent on the ground. He didn't hope for one day to be living in another more glorified tent, right? He was looking forward to a city. Tents, obviously, tents are unstable and tents are insecure. They are not a place that you want to be. Again, campers, you know this. The last few days, right? Beginning at least, I think on Thursday, Thursday, it might've been windy on, on Wednesday, but Thursday was like crazy. Stuff was getting blown all over the place. And the last few days have been pretty windy. Like if you were out, especially in this part of the state where everything's super flat, if you were out on some campground out on the plains out here in that wind, not a great place to be, right? You don't want to be dwelling in tents in that type of weather. But if you were in a city, if you were in a building in a city with a firm foundation, you could have laid your head down on your pillow and slept pretty nice at night, right? Might have been a little loud with the wind. You put your sound machine on and everything's all good, right? But there is stability and there's security from the elements in that city. So obviously there's a very clear contrast here between dwelling in tents presently for Abraham, right? And then this future hope of dwelling in a city. We'll come back to this forward-looking hope of a city prepared by God. But first, there was a big problem that Abraham faced at the time when God called him. While we are told in verse 9 that he, dwent, he dwelt in tents with Isaac and Jacob, his son and his grandson, heirs with him of the same promise, the, the promised land, we know that at the time of his call, Abraham was childless. He wasn't yet dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, right? Because they weren't yet born. Earlier, I mentioned Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7. Listen to Stephen describe what God did after calling Abraham to leave his homeland. It says, this is Acts chapter 7, verse 5, yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. So Acts chapter 7 verses 5 and 6 ties together this idea of place and people. He would give them this land and his his offspring would be sojourners in this land. 
So Abraham not only had a longing for a more permanent place to dwell in, a land that he might actually inherit, but descendants to fill that land as God had promised. And we saw that throughout those readings in Genesis earlier. So now we come to our first promise of people in verses 11 and 12. Sarah here, we are told, by faith, received power to conceive, even though she was past the age, since she considered him faithful, who had promised. Now, if you know the account in Genesis, it's worth noting here that Sarah's initial response to God's promise was laughter, just as Abraham's was. When Isaac gets his name, which means he laughs, our faith in God's promises, we realize, we realize that just like them, our faith in God's promises is not unaffected by our own doubts. The name of their own child reminded them of their doubts, right? How they laughed when God gave them these promises. When a barren 90-year-old woman is told that she will have a baby, it is not ridiculous to question the possibility of such thing. So for us to say, how could she laugh? Didn't she trust God? Well, think about it, right? <laughs> it wasn't just Sarah being past the age, though, that was the problem. We're told in verse 12 here that Abraham was as good as dead. Keep that phrase, as good as dead, in mind. We will be coming back to that. But first, I want to digress a bit here and touch on something that I think we would do well to be mindful of in light of this passage. And I would like to speak a bit to the topic of infertility as it relates to faith. In Scripture, we are giving, given some amazing examples of those who trusted God and walked by faith this whole chapter. But they are not held out to us as those who didn't struggle with doubt. Nor are their situations necessarily ones that we can build a whole theology of Christian discipleship upon. Some accounts in scripture are meant to be descriptive. They tell us what happened to certain people. They are not necessarily meant to be prescriptive, meaning that they tell us what we should do or what should happen to us in a similar situation. Sarah's considering of God's faithfulness and trusting him by faith even though what was true to her eyes looking bleak, we should seek to do the same, right? We should seek to say, we need to trust God when things in our lives might look bleak, when we feel like, how could this ever happen? She trusted God, we should also trust God. But Sarah's particular situation was unique in redemptive history. Isaac's birth is a huge part of this tension that is felt regarding whether or not the people of God are going to make it. And we can't equate that situation to an individual couple today's struggles with infertility. Also, we must, not, we must be careful not to take this example of Sarah's faith and impose that upon a couple that might be struggling with infertility and say, look, see, look at Sarah. You just need to believe, right? You just need to have more faith. Like that's just really another kind of branch of the prosperity gospel, right? If you just trust God, if you just believe him enough, you'll get what you want. And that's not what this passage is teaching, okay? So we should read this and we should say, praise God for what he did for Abraham and Sarah, right? This huge part of, of redemptive history that God orchestrated. But we're not given this testimony of scripture to say that we should take this and then go apply it to someone and say, hey, 
You just got to believe, right? You just got to be like Sarah and believe. Oklahoma Baptist University professor Matthew Arbo has recently written on this topic in his book called Walking Through Infertility. Speaking of the biblical examples of God opening the wombs of those who were unable to conceive, he writes this. The purpose of these narratives is not to demonstrate why and how our fruitful God always triumphs over infertility, opening what is closed and answering every petition. That is an understandable but misleading conclusion to draw. The purpose, rather, is to highlight God's covenant faithfulness. He always upholds his side of the promise. Again, I would argue that that is the whole point of Hebrews chapter 11. It's to highlight God's covenant faithfulness. Abraham, Sarah, and Moses, they are not the heroes of the story. God is the hero. So pointing to those who are not the heroes as example for those who are struggling with infertility is not the answer. Arbo suggests a better answer. He says childlessness is difficult to understand sometimes, but it is not a punitive judgment. God is himself a father. He made the family. He loves the family. God cares for his children and hears their prayers. If you are without children, please know that God has not forgotten or forsaken you, but has instead, perhaps only for a time, given you a slightly different way of being family and thus of participating in his life and mission. Back to our text in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 12, we see that God fulfilled his promises to Abraham to be the father of many nations and descendants as many as the stars of heaven and sand by the seashore, innumerable. And we'll come back to this as well, but this is not just speaking of these early Jewish background believers. It's not just actual physical descendants of Abraham who are children of the promise. But before we get to that, let's look at our next section. This is our second promise of place in verses 13 through 16. We begin by seeing the reality for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It says that these all died in faith. They all died in faith. What? Not having received the things promised. I mentioned this verse last week. It's connected. If you look back at chapter 10, verse 36, as our author here is speaking to his audience, the recipients of this letter, he said, you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. We asked the question then last week, well, did all of these who died in faith in 1113, did they not do the will of God then since they did not receive the things that are promised? And we answered that question by looking ahead again to verse 39, chapter 11, verses 39 and 40. And all these died. Now, this is not just talking about the Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob, the, the patriarchs in verse 13. This is talking about everyone who's listed uh, in this whole chapter. All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. So we have that, again, there's not this not receiving those promised, what is promised. Why? Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So there is this 
very clear picture here that them receiving what is promised and us receiving what is promised is all going to happen at the same time, right? One day when Christ returns, we are all going to be together. We will all be resurrected together and be together with him in glory. And then we will all receive what is promised, okay? So they died in faith, yet they didn't receive what was promised. But having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. The promised land was not their final destination. They saw and greeted from afar their promised destination. And here it says, having acknowledged that they were strangers, uh, that word acknowledged here, it's actually tied back with uh, the word that is used in chapter 10, verse 23, where it says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope saying here that they acknowledge that means they confessed it's it's this it's tied to their faith it's this huge identity thing they confessed that that their hope was in Christ it was in this future place tied back to what we saw in verse 9 that they lived like strangers in a foreign land that was their confession that we are strangers and we are exiles on this earth this world is not our home we are just passing through. So again, when we are pressed with this question of who are we and where do we come from, how do we answer? Some of us may answer, well, I'm a Midwesterner or I'm a Wisconsinite. Some of us are not originally from here. So we might answer what country we come from or what part of our country that we come from. Some of you know what it is like to feel like a stranger in exile in a foreign land. But even if you are from here, right, are you really, (laughs) are you really from here? Is this really your home? And this is where we can really learn from these saints of old. Again, they are not the ultimate heroes, but they are exemplary in this sense. Let's look at verses 14 through 16. For people who speak thus, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Again, this present place that they were in was not their true homeland. Even for Abraham, going back to Ur of the Chaldeans, that was not his homeland, right? He wasn't looking to go back to where he came from, and he wasn't looking to find his identity in the place that God had brought him. He was looking forward to a future homeland. And verses 15 and 16 have this if, then, and but structure, okay? If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, Abraham leaving Ur of the Chaldeans, they would have had opportunity to return. But, okay, so let's focus in on this but here. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. They desire a better country that is a heavenly one. We've seen this word a few times in our journey through Hebrews, haven't we? This word better. They desire a better country. The better country is the city. It's the new Jerusalem. So majestically described in Revelation chapter 21 as coming down out of heaven 
from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And what does John say? Revelation 21.3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. That's what this last sentence of verse 16 here describes when it says that God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And this was a clearly, this was clearly a future-oriented focus for them, as it also is for us. We are to look forward. We are to seek and desire a better homeland. And this requires for us an identity reorientation. It means falling out of love with our place in this world and by faith fixing our eyes on the unseen promises that we have not yet received, just like these saints of old. They were looking forward to a not yet resurrection promise, just as we look back on this Easter Sunday to an already fulfillment in Jesus' empty tomb. But also... With them, we still look forward to a not yet reality of the final resurrection and of our dwelling forever with God as his people in the new heavens and the new earth. It is to this resurrection hope that we now turn as we see the second promise of people in verses 17 through 22. We're mainly going to focus here on verses 17 through 19. This here is the recounting of the events in Genesis chapter 22 where Abraham went on this three-day journey with Isaac and with two of his young men in obedience to God who told him to go and to offer Isaac as a burnt offering. Isaac, the only son through whom the blessing was to come to Abraham and to his descendants. How could God promise one thing and then take away that very thing that he had promised? That's what we immediately think when we read Genesis chapter 22. And maybe Abraham had these same thoughts, but we have no record of that. In Genesis chapter 22, Abraham does not even respond when God tells him to go and sacrifice Isaac. He simply obeys God by faith. He doesn't, he doesn't respond with words. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't ask God any questions. He simply goes. That's what we're told here in verse 19. Now, I asked you earlier to keep the phrase as good as dead in mind. We saw in verse 12 that Abraham's body was as good as dead. In a sense, then, Isaac was as good as dead, too. Humanly speaking, there was no hope of Isaac ever being born. So Isaac was as good as dead. Now, barring another intervention from God, Isaac was as good as dead again in Genesis 22. Look with me at verse 19. He considered, Abraham, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham believed that God could raise Isaac from the dead. That's certainly what Abraham seems to intend in Genesis 22.5 when he said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship, 
and come again to you. And when Isaac said, my father, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And the father, full of faith in the God who did the impossible in giving him a son in his old age, said to his son, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And we know how it went. When Isaac was as good as dead, tied up, the wood was in place, the fire was ready, the knife was raised. Abraham, Abraham, here I am. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. A deeper truth that is no doubt echoed by Paul in Romans 8.32 when he writes, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? While God provided the sacrificial lamb to die in the place of Isaac, he did not spare his own son, his only son. Instead, the only son became the sacrifice in our place. The father did not spare his own son because he was able to raise him from the dead. When Jesus was three days in the grave, death and the grave were defeated as he rose in glorious victory. That was the good news, the greatest of news. That first Easter morning, and it is the best of news to us in all the world to this day. It's not something that just happened a long time ago in a land far away to a group of people that we can't relate to. It was the reality for the descendants of Abraham who had longed for generations for their coming and conquering messianic king. But it was not just for the ethnic descendants of Abraham. The promise was always bigger than that. Those who trust in Jesus from every tribe and language and people and nation have always been the intended recipients of these promises. Those who have lived in this world and walked by faith, confessing that they are strangers and exiles and that they are looking forward to their true homeland, the city which God has prepared for them. This future-oriented identity reorientation is not the only thing that is needed for us, though. We also need a present tense identity reorientation. What does it look like then to live here and now in light of our resurrection hope? As I mentioned earlier, we are going to look at Romans chapter 4. So you can turn there now if you have the Pew Bibles, that is on page 941. There are a couple of great sections in the New Testament speaking of the faith of Abraham. This is one of them. Paul gives a great description of Abraham's faith. And I think Paul maybe here ties it a little more closely with what it means for us today, what Abraham's faith means for us today than the author in Hebrews does explicitly. Look at Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. It says, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. 
For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. We see here in these couple of verses, a lot of the same truths that we've seen already throughout Hebrews. Verse 16, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the ones, the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. This is describing us when we were as good as dead. God gave us life. He called us into existence. Verse 18, in hope, he believed against hope, again, Abraham, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness, literally here, this word for barrenness literally means deadness, okay, so he's, there's this connection that Sarah's womb is dead. Abraham is as good as dead. He didn't, uh, he didn't waver in unbelief concerning the promises of God, verse 20, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Now, here's where we come in. Pay attention here. Romans 4, starting in verse 23. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. Who is Paul writing to here? He's writing to Gentile believers in Rome, right? He's not writing to Jewish background Christians where we would say, oh, well, yeah, Paul's just talking to those who are actual physical descendants of Abraham. No, he's writing to Gentile Christians, those who would have been considered outsiders, right, by the people of Israel. So the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead our Lord Jesus, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Notice that resurrection language come full circle here. It wasn't just Abraham, right, believing that, that God could raise Isaac from the dead. It was Abraham trusting in God, trusting in the, the future reality of Jesus' resurrection. And we who believe that also, we who believe that God raised Jesus from the dead because he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification, it will also be counted to us as righteousness. So on the cross, our trespasses, our sins are dealt with. We had a massive sin problem that we couldn't fix. We were as good as dead when it came to our standing before God. We had no life in and of ourselves, but Jesus dealt with our sin on the cross. And then the empty tomb, our justification and our righteousness, it is counted to us who believe. Not only was our sin dealt with that negative aspect, but positively we were declared righteous before God. 
justified by faith in Christ, just like Abraham was. So the question for us today is, do we believe this? Do we believe this gospel? Do we believe this good news that has been declared to us? And not just in some historical sense, like, yeah, I believe that Jesus was a real person, right? But do we believe that he is the only son of God who became the sacrificial lamb in our place on the cross and then rose victoriously over the grave? This is what we confess as Christians. This is what is required for us to be able to come this morning and to be admitted to this table. Faith in Christ saying, when I was as good as dead, God got a hold of me. God made me alive. I had no life in myself because of my sin. But my sin was put on Christ on the cross. And by grace through faith, God counted me righteous in his sight, not by anything that I had done. If we would have come to this table on the other side of the cross without the empty tomb, this would be the most dismal event in human history on this side of the cross, right? This would be the, like, the worst thing we could do, the, the worst remembrance of something that we look back to if there was no empty tomb. However, we look back to the cross. We remember and we celebrate, but we approach this table on this side of the cross and we rejoice because three days later, Jesus conquered sin and death and the grave. We come to this table on the other side of the empty tomb, right? We don't come in between the cross and the empty tomb. We come to this table on the other side of the empty tomb. The resurrection hope that we have in Jesus is what makes coming to this table joyful and not sorrowful. So this table this morning is for all of those who have trusted in Christ, who can say, yes, I am a Christian. My faith is not in my something that I can bring with my own hands. It's not in pleasing God by my own effort, but it is in the finished work of Christ on the cross. It is in his victory over the grave, over the tomb. And we can come in faith, trusting that we belong to him 